Thank you for joining the Levers for Change podcast, where we search for who is responsible for what in making an impact on the environment, the energy systems, and the economy. Today's guest is Richard Sonstely. During the late 1990s, Rich was the CEO of Puget Sound Energy, which to this day is the largest utility in Washington state. At the time, Puget Sound Energy generated over $1 billion in revenue each year and managed over $2 billion in generation, transmission, and distribution assets. He also oversaw the merger of the natural gas utility with his electric utility. I was fascinated by how, although the specific technical, financial, and political issues may have changed, many of the managerial best practices of leading a high-performing team are just as relevant today as they were 30 years ago. So here's an inside look at what it takes to run a major investor-owned utility. Rich Sponsley, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Uh, and I know you've had a long and storied career, Puget Sound Energy, for 20-some-odd years, if mm -hmm. I remember, starting at Executive Vice President. And I, I have to say, in, in preparation for this interview, I did some online research, and I found a video that you presented at the IEEE conference in 1992. Wow. That was 16 years <laughs> ago. And I have to say that in listening to that, your voice has not changed a bit <laughs> in 20-some-odd years, 22 years. And so really, my first question is, how do you stay sharp? Well, I'm not sure I'm staying sharp, but, um, <laughs> you know, I've decided that in retirement, one of the best things you can do is to keep reading and to keep listening. I was always fascinated by the energy field, even before I ended up with the utility. I might tell you that, you know, when I got out of the Army and went back to, to get my MBA, it was 1972 to 1974, the big energy crisis. I mean, living in Boston and sitting in line for hours just to fill up the tank of the car. So energy was really at the forefront of what was going on, and that really made me interested in, you know, spending a career in energy somewhere. I didn't know it would be with the utility. I thought it might be with Bechtel. Yeah, and one of the other things that struck me was through, I think, your entire career, conservation and environmentalism also played a huge role in the approach you had to energy. They did. Um, we were very fortunate in my company to have, I think, a relationship with the environmental community that we realized uh, was an important part of our business. They, they weren't the other side. They were part and parcel of our business, uh, particularly a guy named Ralph Cavana. Ralph was an attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council out of San Francisco, but he spent most of his time in the Northwest. And Ralph worked with us during the time that we were developing significant conservation programs to try to make those conservation programs pay off for the utility as well as the customers. And, you know, in, with conservation, there was always this issue of foregone revenues. Mm -hmm. How do you make up for that? And so Washington State developed this decoupling mechanism for our revenues that basically made it good business right, that was back in the to 90s. do cost-effective conservation. Quite a while ago, I mean, the early 90s. Yeah. So we're talking about a time when 
there were some good conservation programs going on here on the West Coast, but there were a lot of utilities still very resistant to programs like that for understandable financial reasons. That's what we dealt with, with an immense amount of help from the environmental community. Right, and a lot of that decoupling happened here well before it happened in California in the 2000 crisis and then... It did. I think it helped a bit, Jimmy, that we had a relatively small laboratory here to try it out. I mean, the size of Puget Sound Energy, Puget Power back then, to uh, try out something like that compared to the massively huge utilities in the state of California. This became a really good... Uh, laboratory, if you will, for trying out some of these ideas, and I think they were very effective. And, you know, the result was an extremely strong conservation program. I mean, it's easy to measure the bottom line on that, and very cost-effective conservation. And so, with the significant growth that was occurring in the greater Puget Sound area, dampening that growth a bit by cost-effective conservation really had a big payoff. I read that you grew up in Ottawa, and then you moved here to the Pacific Northwest. You spent time on the East Coast and all over the country. Is the brand of environmentalism or the lifestyle of environmentalism different in the Pacific Northwest than the other places you've been, and how is it different? Well, that's a good question. I think it's different. I would say this. I found the New England utilities that I got to know over time. They had a similar relationship with their environmental community that we do on the West Coast. And so that pleased me. And as a matter of fact, I was involved with a a wonderful group of environmental leaders, uh, business people, regulators, and others that met two or three times a year. Ralph Cabana was part of that. And I found that the Northeast utilities and the West Coast utilities thought similarly about this, that they they had to get over seeing these things as a threat and find a way to turn them into an opportunity or at least, as a minimum, a Mm no-lose, even if in the short run it wasn't a win. And I I saw that similarly. I got a feeling that many of my counterparts, perhaps in the southeast and other places, were maybe a little more threatened. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe, I'm not sure why. But uh, there did seem to be that difference. And maybe it was just the political differences that persist to this day between the coasts and and other parts of the country. Well, before we get into the details of decoupling and how these, I think, fascinating, wonky details of utilities, tell us about how you you studied nuclear. You were at West Point. You studied nuclear engineering. You studied business. Uh, How did you set yourself on the path to become the CEO? Well... When I was graduating from West Point way back in 1966, the Army believed that it needed a nuclear power program. The Navy had, of course, a strong nuclear power program, but theirs was submarines and other ships that used nuclear. They had Admiral Rickover, a brilliant man who was leading all that effort. And the Army had some experiments going on, Jimmy, with nuclear power. They had um, a nuclear power plant on a a barge called the Sturgis that they anchored off the Panama Canal Zone where the U.S. had a base and provided base power from this barge. They also had um, a portable reactor that was initially built, I believe, in Idaho and then shipped to Camp Century, Greenland and provided base power. So there was this theory that small nuclear plants that were portable, if you will, like these, 
would be an important part of what the Army would do in the future. Turns out they were wrong. <laughs> but nonetheless, I ended up, right after West Point, going to MIT and getting a master's in nuclear engineering because the Army wanted nuclear engineers. The guy who was my closest friend in college was my roommate at MIT. He also got his nuclear engineering degree and ended up a dentist. In <laughs> but that got me interested to start with. Well, by the time I finished at MIT, there was really no Army nuclear power program. <laughs> in two years, there was no Rick over to lead it. It really just never quite penciled out. So I went and did my airborne and ranger training and Vietnam tour and everything else. And then when I came back, I was going to go to the engineer school at Fort Belvoir. And instead, out of the blue, got shipped off to spend three years at Los Alamos, New Mexico, at the laboratory there. I was one of two Army officers there. Los Alamos was a fascinating place. The more PhDs per capita than anywhere in the world, I believe. Mm -hmm. And the brain power was startling. And while I wasn't working directly on the project, some of the projects in fusion and other things that were going on in Los Alamos were so interesting. And it just furthered my interest in the whole field of energy. And so when I got out of the Army in 1972, I decided that while I'd enjoyed engineering, I was in the Army Corps of Engineers, I really liked, I was one of the only engineers that seemed to like the paperwork and management side of it. <laughs> well, many of my fellow engineers said, I don't want any of that, I want to be an engineer. So I went back and got an MBA. And then in 74, and as I mentioned, the energy crisis was full on at that point. I knew I wanted to work in the energy field. I didn't know where. I ended up interviewing with this medium-sized utility in Bellevue, Washington, and came out to build a nuclear power plant, which we didn't... And back then, that was Puget Power. That was Puget, Puget Power. Puget it was power. a Skagit nuclear power plant, which was a two... was going to be a, a, a two-unit plant up in Skagit County, uh, near the Canadian border. What really killed that plant was a three-mile island accident. It happened right as, and even though there was no one killed, and it was an economic disaster, if not a health disaster. And it happened right as the Skagit nuclear power plant was in its most critical phase of licensing. Mm. And it just, it stopped a lot of plants in a lot of parts of the country, but it really stopped this one dead. And so we never built that, but by that time, I'd realized that I was in a very interesting company with people I really enjoyed working with, I started getting more into finance and less into power plants. And so that uh, kept me at the, at the utility for 26 years. Yeah, and you took over the conservation program, you became the CFO, you held a number of jobs before. I did, yeah, and that, that's one of the reasons it was such an interesting career, because mm -hmm. I had a lot of different jobs. And that's, to me, nowadays I notice with my children, they tend to end up, like my younger daughter here in Seattle, she ends up with a lot of different companies. She works with startups. Mm -hmm. I was with the same company for a lot of years, but the jobs were so different that it was still, you know, new challenges all the time, new interesting things to learn. From conservation, I went to transmission distribution engineering, even though my engineering training was nuclear, and did that for a while. And then I went back to, cor I was in corporate planning for a while, and I just did a lot of different things, and that just made it so fascinating. And you know, I, I had a boss who kind of mentored me and ended up CFO and then 
chief operating officer and ultimately CEO. And then we did the merger with a gas company. You know, I left the company, retired relatively early, which had been a long time plan of my wife and me. And so uh, it's worked out very well. Yeah, so it just goes to show that even inside of a large, seemingly stodgy organization, there's a lot of dynamics and a lot of great opportunities and spontaneity. Yeah, there are. And of course, I was lucky enough to have some people that I worked for who encouraged me to try different things. Never said, I won't let you go to that job or something like that. Sure, try that, learn about it, etc. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in any company or, or any uh, profession, when you have people around you who encourage you to try new things and, and don't try to keep you in place all the time, that's just wonderful. And the utility industry, of course, you know, it's a fascinating industry. It is not, it doesn't encourage entrepreneurship. Well, that's understandable in many ways. Number one, entrepreneurs aren't going to be attracted, typically. And secondly, when you're running things like power plants and a transmission distribution grid and things like that, I'm not sure you want to be terribly entrepreneurial. And experimenting. And experimenting, yeah. exactly. People depend on that power, and I think you've got to be a little more solid. Let's get to uh, some of the details of what this utility is, and especially I want to get to what decoupling ends up having sure. to be. So utilities being that they are public or private, but Puget Power, Puget Sound Energy, uh, is an investor-owned utility, and they sell electricity, and they have to pay for the infrastructure, the transmission, the generation infrastructure, to be able to deliver those electrons. Yes. And the traditional notion of how a utility makes money is based on how many electrons it sells through the infrastructure right. that the utility built. But yet this notion of decoupling comes up, which is the idea of decoupling the revenue from the number of electrons sold in order to pay for this infrastructure. Yes. Right. How did the idea of decoupling come around and why did it help the environmental conservation movement? I think it had been around in academic circles for a while. So... The idea was, how do we make selling less not painful? And clearly in business, the more you sell, you know, you think that's one of the best ways to succeed at your business is more and more revenue. But what was happening here in the Northwest was that made it different and therefore easier to work on is our incremental cost of power was dramatically higher than the embedded cost of power. Because we were a heavily hydro-based system here in the Northwest, rates were very low. And I remember they were three to four cents a kilowatt hour exactly. back in the 90s, right? Yeah. And so you have rates that are maybe a third what they are in the highest cost parts of this country. That's really good news. But the problem is when you add almost any new resource on top of that, that new resource is incrementally significantly more expensive. Right. Whether it was coal-fired or nuclear or gas turbines or whatever it might have been at that point, it was going to push your rates up. And frankly, customers are not terribly interested when you remind them how low their rates are. <laughs> they mostly are interested to find out if you're going to increase their rates. And when you are, they're not very happy. So we had regulators faced with the fact that although our rates were very low by national standards, they were going to tend, as growth happened and we had to go get new resources, 
they were going to be pushed up pretty fast because the base was so low, if you follow. So with a low base, any increment is going to push it up relatively fast. In a part of the country with very high rates, an additional resource might in fact be cheaper than what they already had and therefore might keep rates at least steady or lower. Right, if they're shutting down an inefficient coal power plant with a new exactly. resource, it could lower Good example, rates. yes. But what, So what we had was a situation where it was in the public interest, and if in the public interest, ultimately in the utilities interest too, since we're a public utility serving that public, to try to keep this growth down a bit so that we were not adding resources quite so fast, quite so expensively. And that's where the idea of what can we do to dampen growth so we're not selling quite as many more kilowatt hours, but to do it in a way that benefits customers. And it's obvious why it benefits customers. If you can keep from pushing up, getting so many new resources and pushing up rates so fast, then it's going to benefit customers. How could it benefit the utility? Well, the answer was, why don't we make it at least neutral, if not positive, that if the utility invests in conservation programs and gets less revenue, it will not end up hurting them. And there were some great ideas in academia out there. There were some very good ideas. I mentioned Ralph Cabana's name already. He was probably our number one ally. And the commission got very interested in a hurry, the commission staff, people that needed to be aligned with this, needed to believe in it as well as us. So we, before we ever did anything or brought a, a rate filing in, we'd had a lot of discussions that included environmentalists at the table and commission staff at the table to talk about what we were trying to do here. And ideas came up like incremental return on conservation investments. You know, that's how utilities are allowed to earn, as you well know, is they make an investment they put it in what's called their rate base, and they're allowed to earn on that investment. If they buy power, they don't earn on that. When they buy power, that's just a pass-through. While they may get compensated or should get compensated for buying the power, that doesn't earn them any profit. Customers never quite realized that, that when we were buying power, we weren't adding anything on top of it. But when they make an investment, whether it's in lines and substations or whether it's in power plants, or whether it's in conservation, they're allowed to earn a return, which allows them to cover their cost of capital, whether that's debt. And of course, a piece of the cost of capital is equity. That is the ownership that the utility shareholder has in a company. And, you know, I think that's one of to the most confusing points about how a utility functions is utilities don't actually make profit, but yet they make profit. And yes. it turns out that the definition of profit or the meaning of profit is different. From the utility's point of view, they're covering their costs That's in order right. to operate, and the additional money is really a return on shareholder investment that is uh, the cost of capital, essentially, to bring in it infrastructure. Is. Yeah, and, and for an investor-owned utility, you know, utilities are typically, they're very capital-intensive. They spend a lot of money, they have to, to provide the infrastructure and the power plants and everything like that. And they tend to have a much higher debt load than most other companies do. But since they're considered relatively lower risk than a company that's out there with, when you're competing in the marketplace and have no protections at all, as much as utility uh, CEOs love to complain about their regulators, in fact, there's a bit of protection that's offered 
by good regulation in addition to the uh, difficulty offered sometimes yeah. by regulation. And so because there's a significant amount of debt, there's got to be underlying that for the people to agree to provide the debt. There's got to be some at-risk money, if you will. And the at-risk money, of course, in any company is the shareholder. They, their return happens only after the debt has been paid, and so they are at a higher risk. And typically they get a somewhat higher return because they're at a higher risk. And in the utility industry, that return is highly regulated. Uh, you have to go out and prove what it is the market requires to be able to continue to give you capital on reasonable terms. That's the whole basis of rate cases that happen in states. Show what you're investing, show that it's prudent, and show what you need to get back to be able to continue to attract capital because it's an ongoing thing with utility. What strikes me about the conversation so far is as much as you were the utility CEO and electric utility CEO, a lot of the conversations you have are financial-based. So when you were running the company, how much of your concerns were about the energy side? How much was about the people side? How much was about the financial side? I would say the number one was the people side. I think it is in any company. If you, if you lose touch with the people side, those who work with you, the customers, the shareholders, you, you've lost it. So that, that, would, that came first. But in my case, I spent more time on the financial side than I did the operations side. Partly because I knew the operations part pretty well, so I was comfortable, and I had it. There was a really good team there, so that was the biggest reason. Not that we didn't have a good financial team, but the the operations team was really good. They knew what they were doing. We didn't run a whole lot of power plants. Uh, we bought a lot of power. We ran a very big transmission distribution system. Um, but I, those were people that knew what they were doing. I'm not an electrical engineer. They were. Uh, I wasn't about to tell them how to do that. I'd have been wrong. So I spent, and I'd been CFO before I moved up, and my concentration in my MBA was also finance. So I really spent a lot of time on the financial side. But, you know, they all come together. They do all They're not together. separate sides of the business. Right. They're right. interrelated. So looking at, then, the, the people looking at the ecosystems, we've already just in conversation talked about regulators, clients, employees, shareholders, environmentalists, commissioners, and whatnot. How do you get people together, aligned, agreement? What's that effort like? It just, it takes a lot of time. And I think that's probably why a lot of people are critical of utilities for not moving fast. I think it's hard for them to move fast because there are, as you point out, so many publics involved. I had a regulator once say to me that it's not about the bottom line, it's about the process. That's a scary thing for a business person to hear because you think, of course, it's, it's about the ultimate outcome here. But in utilities at least in the minds of regulators, and they're not entirely wrong on this, there are legal requirements to follow a process. And there are so many publics that want to get involved. Customers want to be involved. They don't want you in a room with one or two parties making a deal when they have a stake in that too. So you end up with a very big table, if you will. Sometimes it plays out in regulatory hearings. Better than that, when it plays out in reaching agreement before you get in a uh, 
adversarial process. Those are the best of all outcomes. But there are a lot of players. And it's not just the utility commission, it's the environmental commissions, it's the financial regulators. I mean, how, off the top of your head, how many commissions and regulators did you have to satisfy? This state has elected commissioners, or appointed commissioners, excuse me. So you've got a commission down in Olympia, in the state capitol, that has a staff. They've got two kinds of staff. They've got the staff that works for the commissioners. Then they have a separate staff that works with the Attorney General of the state that's there to represent it, the public, right. all right? And typically they feel their role, which I think is correct in this state, is to represent largely low-income customers. Mm -hmm. Then you've got the customers themselves, the large industrial customers, typically have hired very capable people, not just attorneys, but very capable engineers to work with us to look at what we're doing. Now, Boeing was our biggest customer, and they spent a lot of time with us. We were a huge part of their cost of doing business, so it mattered a lot what their electric rates were, and they cared a whole lot about reliability, as did Microsoft, probably our second biggest customer at that point. Reliability was critical to them, and if we were going to compromise reliability by not spending money, they were going to be very concerned. So you got this push and pull from these people all with a stake in this, but sometimes almost opposing stakes. Mm -hmm. Keep the rates down, keep the reliability up. Those are very difficult to balance. I find that fascinating. I mean, it was, you know, really interesting to be involved in. It was frustrating at times because I, I think the biggest frustration I had, Jimmy, during that time was the feeling that a bunch of us involved knew exactly what the right thing to do was. But you couldn't just go do that because you had to go through such a involved adversarial process to get there. And yet, if you had a wise judge over here that you could all go to, he or she would say, aha, you're right, that is the best thing we could do. And yet, sometimes you never quite got there or you got there very slowly. It sounds so much more of a communication problem and making sure everyone was bought into the decision that was being made. And it, it's not, 10% of it is a technical problem. 90% of it is communication. Part of the communication is understanding. You know, you may have a great idea. I, I um, spent a short while as a uh, guest speaker at the University of Washington's engineering program, the nuclear engineering program, and I was invited a couple of times. And I always gave the same speech, which is I told the engineering students, most of whom are grad students, please make sure you're taking courses in creative writing, take that speech course, get on that debate team, because your ability to be an effective engineer may be compromised by your inability to communicate. Mm -hmm. And if you can't, you can have the most brilliant idea in the world if you can't communicate it and convince particularly non-technical people that it's a sound idea, you're not worth a whole lot. The finest engineers I saw in my time at Puget Power were also terrific communicators. And they may not have been as technically brilliant as some of their staff, but boy, they sure got the job done because they could communicate. And probably translate as well between the business language as well as with the technical language. And oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, you know, ultimately in our business, you had to convince basically regulators who are, are political animals. So it is a political process. We can think of it as a financial process or an engineering process, but it's not. It's a political process. Mm -hmm. 
they, they answer to the public. They are appointed by the governor. They're overseen by the legislature. So ultimately, it's a political process in the utility business. And boy, there's a lot of communication required. And I think that stems from the fact that these utilities really have a social contract with society, which is an obligation to serve for a local monopoly. And people remember the local monopoly. They tend to forget the obligation to serve they, portion of they that They do concept. forget obligation to serve. I don't, I don't think I ever saw anybody in my utility, anybody, who didn't live the obligation to serve. They knew that's why they were there. There was just no question in their mind. Some of the parties, though, could get a little blasé about that, about the fact that there was this obligation to serve. One of the reasons it was strong in this state, incidentally, was that our state was at that time about 50% investor-owned utilities, and 50% of customers in this state were served by governmental utilities. City of Seattle, where we're sitting right now, being an example, served and, and by so, Seattle City Life. It's the home of PUD, where we talked to sleep. Exactly. Well. So because these public utilities were out there as, if you will, competitors, and I spent many times passing out leaflets in areas of our service territory that were having a vote about setting up public power and displacing my company. Now, we won those, but we won them by being a good citizen by being a company that people didn't say, well, they're terrible. Any alternative is better than that. And we're seeing that today in California with community choice aggregation against the, Puget Sound, uh, the, the PG&Es, the San Diego gas and electrics well, and whatnot. I, I mean, California, the, the situation down there, of course, is, is dire in PG, with PG&Es bankruptcy filing and things like that. But, you know, a big piece of that for utility executives is... They just can't forget that they're there to serve the public. And that sounds really trite, but quite important to remember, you know. And uh, when, when I went and visited with uh, the financial community, which I did a lot as a CFO, and then I continued to do as CEO because we were raising money all the time, you really have to continue to, to pay attention to those investors and their representatives back there. The ones we did business with, fully understood that if we lost focus on our customers, the shareholders were going to lose. I mean, I didn't have to convince them we're doing this because it's good for customers. And they say, oh, well, it's terrible for shareholders. You never heard that. They understood. These are utilities. And they must, in fact, satisfy these, especially in a place like Washington with public power all over the place. They must satisfy this or they're going to be out of business. Going back to these ecosystems, yeah. thinking about the ecosystem and that social contract with obligation to serve, the electric utility historically has been one of the key drivers of economic development yes. in rural areas. Um, you also spent some time on the Federal Reserve Board down in San Francisco, which is also about economic development. Is the utility still in the driver's seat of economic development? How has that evolved over I think it can be. As a matter of fact, when I knew about our opportunity to talk, I tried to think a little bit about what if I were CEO today, would I have opportunities? I think the opportunities with electric vehicles and the infrastructure associated with that are enormous for, I've been reading things on that recently, <laughs> how enormous they are for the electric utility who sees that as an opportunity, not to sell the vehicles, 
but to be part of that critical part of that infrastructure that supports this. Well, and what struck me on that IEEE interview in 1992, you mentioned electric vehicles as an opportunity. And they're a tremendous opportunity, much more so today than they were in 1992. Um, I was just reading some, um, I'm a big follower of Axios and some of their reports. But Axios generate, you know, with their projections on electric vehicle sales, I mean, they're just, the numbers are stunning. And they point out that all the infrastructure needs are going to be part of that, but the utility ought to be one of the major players in that. They, they're well positioned to do that. A second one that I thought of while we're on the subject of today's CEO, what's happening on the West Coast about legal requirements to be 100% at renewables, I think utilities have a great chance to see that as an opportunity or they can see it as a terrible threat. Just like decoupling back in your days. Just like decoupling, very much like decoupling. And here on the West Coast, the environmental ethos of our customers is so strong that the utility is going to be so well positioned if it's out in front, supportive of these drives. Now, if the utilities pays attention, what it will do is it will point out in a few cases where there's some unrealistic expectations or there's a better way to do it, but they've got to be part of that conversation rather than saying, oh my gosh, they're mandating such and such. How am I going to ever recover the costs of that coal plant I have to close or that nuclear plant or whatever? Of course, I think 100% renewables without throwing nuclear power out is a very bad public choice. But some, some people are including nuclear and some are not. Interesting to see how the environmental community shifts back and forth on nuclear power as part of that. But in any event, seeing that as a light electric vehicles, an opportunity to get right out in front. I get quizzed. I spend part of my winters, a lot of my winters in Arizona, as you know, to get away from the rain up here. But I get quizzed all the time by neighbors down there about wind power. Oh, isn't that just a terrible choice? I say, oh, I got to tell you, since I left my company, They've made significant investments in wind, and it fits so well in our system with the existing hydro that's there that we can store water behind the dams, so when the wind isn't blowing, it's there. And I said, really does. Well, you know, energy is so regional, is what that demonstrates, right? One of the questions I have is about how you relate to the peer institutions. In the U.S., there's 4,000 electric utilities. And not only that, the entire West Coast, 11 states or so, are on the same transmission line, the Western Interconnect. But that's 14 different state regulators that all of these peer institutions of yours have to respond to, relate to. Then they have different ratepayer concerns, different citizens' concerns, different resource concerns. How do you then interact with these other CEOs and these other utilities? In, in the day when I was involved in it, we spent a lot of time meeting together. You couldn't have done that in many other industries because of antitrust concerns. But given we weren't sitting there talking about fixing prices or anything like that, we still had attorneys around to make sure we were talking about the right things. But in fact, utility executives have the ability to get together and talk about a whole lot of things that other companies probably couldn't or would have a hard time doing. So we tried to share views, share innovation, share best practices, things like that. A lot of that went on. And very often, I found in this state, our regulators were really interested. They wanted to know what 
EPRI, the Electric Power Research Institute. They wanted us to be very involved with them. They wanted to hear their latest studies, not just their technical studies, but their rate. They were doing rate innovation studies and things like that. And we tried to share that as much as we could with the commission and their staff. So as difficult as it is, and you point out all the different regulatory bodies and everything like that, all the, the parties who had a stake in this, as many of them as there are, there's also, there also was more sharing in my time here in the West particularly, with uh, very little ego, I found, by a lot of the parties, very interested in hearing what was going on. People like the Electric Power Research Institute and others trying to play the role of uh, facilitator in some of these things. The facilitator role today is going to be so critical. Some parties that can be out there who don't have a big stake personally, don't necessarily represent any one party, Mutual third but party. people like you who, <laughs> who, who understand the issues, who don't have a big stake in it, who aren't big investors in electric utilities and aren't in this organization or that organization, but in fact understand the issues, believe that we've got to get together to solve these things. Mm -hmm. Facilitators are going to be terribly important. And the, the electric utility now touches so many more industry sectors. You bring in the smart grid, you bring in software, internet, right? electric vehicles, transportation. Like the, the mandate for this economic development societal construct is much broader. Very much so. And, and, you know, compared to when I joined the industry in 1974, electricity is so much more vital now than it was then. Yeah. I mean, then we thought of it as the most important thing. Of course, we were in the business. <laughs> It's going on in the country. But in fact, compared to 1974, now with this information-based economy, with electric vehicles, with so many things that are electric-dependent, that the infrastructure and the sources, you know, we talk about all non-carbon sources. I prefer to say that than uh, renewable sources, but all non-carbon sources makes an enormous amount of sense. And, but you got to worry about infrastructure in the meantime, too. You're right. We, all, we are intertied here in the West Coast, but it's not the strongest intertie around. And it's quite vulnerable. We know about cyber threats. It's a very vulnerable system. And uh, as dependent as we are on electricity and the vulnerability of that system, somebody's got to be paying a lot of attention to that, too. Let's talk about managing the organization now. Um, right. And one of the things we talked about, hinted at really early on, was that you joined Puget Power. And then in the mid-90s, there was a merger with Washington Energy Company, which was a natural gas provider, and that was what formed Puget Sound Energy. So what was it like managing the merger and acquisition of two different cultures? That's a really good question. I haven't thought about it for a long time. I lived it so in such a dramatic fashion for a couple of years, because it takes two to three years to do a utility merger. To start with, you got to really make sure it makes sense and that it's not just, boy, we'd like to be bigger, and if we bought the gas company, we'd be bigger. But in fact, in this state, it made enormous sense because we knew that for heating, and remember, there's not a... Not a huge air conditioning load in the Northwest compared to California. So we'll start with that, Western Washington anyway. So we knew for heating, all of us knew that natural gas made a whole lot more sense for heating. Now, if you were going to do both heating and cooling and you used heat pumps, then 
an electric system might make sense, but, but heating. So there wasn't as much rivalry, if you will, built in there because it made good sense. And not that we told our customers who wanted electric heat, sorry, we won't do it, you've got to call the gas company. But we certainly knew that it may, might be a lot better choice to go natural gas. And so we often advised that. So to start with, we were competitors, but not real big rivals. And then, of course, if you can merge the administrative parts of the utilities, it makes a whole lot of sense. The cultures were not that different. I found the key executives I met with when we were working on the merger from the gas company had just as big a commitment to customers as my company did. It was a much smaller company, and gas issues were different than electric issues. They had storage, but they had transportation as we did. They had storage. They weren't building power plants, obviously. So the issues were relatively similar. And uh, convincing regulators was, of course, the challenge because I think the two companies were convinced pretty quickly that it made sense. And we made an offer for the gas company that they could say was genuinely in their shareholders' interest, which they have to be able to say. But it still took a year and a half, two years. Mm -hmm. Because you've got to prove to a lot of parties. Regulators of different regulators. Uh, big customers, they were really involved. There was a degree of suspicion that, whoa, boy, if there's one less player in this energy business, is that going to disadvantage us? And I think we kind of had to show them that it wasn't going to disadvantage them. Matter of fact, we had to commit to certain practices and rates and things like that that would guarantee them, not just our word, but guarantees that they were not going to be disadvantaged. And of course, we had complications like we serve gas in the city of Seattle. We don't serve electricity here. So Seattle City Light sounded an alarm. Is that big Puget Power going to move in here and try to take over our electric system? Which we weren't. But there were a lot of uh, parties to be satisfied about it. And it took quite a while. I think it's proven out very well. I'm sure there are still people who don't like their utility for lots of reasons, but I don't think one of the reasons is they're a gas and electric company. That doesn't seem to bother anybody. Through that entire experience of leading Puget Sound Energy, what decisions could you make quickly? And what decisions really took a long time and you had to slow down? Well, the decisions that had to be made quickly, and therefore were, had to do with getting the right people in the right place. And, and you know, the any utility executive, whether at the CEO level or, or the managerial level or vice president level, whatever, is only is going to be effective as his or her subordinates are effective. I mean, the CEO's ability to, quote, get things done is relatively limited. You get things done through others. The thing that had to be done relatively quickly all the time was to get the right people into the right jobs. If, if there were people that had to be removed uh, in the utility industry, you did that rather gently. But you had to do it. You had to get the right people in place. And those, I think people make mistakes in all kinds of companies, including utilities, when they sit there and watch non-performance and don't do anything about it. And we felt pretty strongly about that. My predecessor was good about that too. And so we tried to create a culture where you weren't just going to sit in place for your whole career and not, not do anything. As far as the ones that could be made more slowly, the decisions about major investments were made slowly. They were made slowly both because the investments tended to be so large, which they are with utilities, 
utility boards tend to be conservative by their nature and should be. They should be people who ask tough questions, who don't readily venture out in new ventures. And you've got all these parties, as we've been talking about, to convince that this makes sense. You don't just jump into these investments when you could have regulators decide they were imprudent and you'll never return recover your costs. Things like that are what bring utilities to bankruptcy or other things that make them not a good investment because they're they're either not being prudent with their investment or they're not proving to who they have to prove that the investment was prudent. And that, that continues to this day and I'm sure will be as part of a natural regu regulatory environment. For someone getting started, where would be the best place for them to get engaged with the utility you know, from a career point of view? Or what getting started at, at the, yeah, what expertise would the utility yeah. be looking for? Let me talk a bit about engineer versus non-engineer for a minute. From an engineering standpoint, I'd encourage them to get involved. Mostly it's going to be electrical engineers. It's mostly a transmission distribution system. But certainly mechanical, civil, the other disciplines are needed too. I would encourage those people before they ever get there to have taken the communication courses I talked about earlier, if they really want to succeed. And to make it clear early on in their career as an engineer, as engineers, that they are very interested in the managing side, not shy away from that, not shy away from being the one to write the report, even if it's not what your favorite thing to do, to be willing to get out there and stick your head up a little bit, be noticed. People worry about being noticed for mistakes and they forget about being noticed for successes if they're gonna get ahead. In my career, I was lucky enough to have bosses who noticed me, you know, and that, that really makes a big difference if you're noticed. Financial people, very similarly, get in there, whether you're an accountant, an auditor, whatever you may come in at, uh, and show that you're interested in the bigger picture, that you're not just there to do debits and credits, that you're there to understand the business. For those coming in, like I did with you know, an MBA, prove that you're really interested in the utility business. This concept of MBAs coming into companies and thinking, boy, I'm all prepared to go into top management immediately. I mean, that, you know, what a way to alienate everybody around you, you know. <laughs> be willing to go in there and do the work. And if, if you're good, you'll be noticed. And again, show you're interested in the big picture. Quiz your leaders about, tell me more about why we're doing this. Tell me who all's involved and things like that. I think, you know, most older business people delight in younger people who ask questions. And a lot of people are afraid to. No reason to be afraid to. You find out pretty quickly which people you don't particularly want to ask questions to because they won't <laughs> give you a good answer and they're grumpy. But all these companies have some really fine people in them who are mid-career or late career. There's a lot to learn from them. And going and asking them the questions is very flattering. Mm -hmm. I know, you know, I had people that came into the company in the latter stages of my career who said, could I get a meeting with the CEO? And my secretary always knew that my door was always open to these people. Some great people came in and asked some really good questions. And I got to learn a little bit about them. And I don't think it ever hurt one of them that came in the door. Mm -hmm. Probably helped most of them mm -hmm. so, to do that. Well, that's a great note to end the podcast with. Ask questions. Ask questions. <laughs> Ask questions. Well, Rich, thank you so much for your you time. Bet, I really appreciate it. Delighted as always.
You have been listening to the Levers for Change podcast, where we search for who has responsibility for what when implementing change. My name is Jimmy Gia, and the music is by Sean Hart. Please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes and share with a friend. Please visit our website at www.leversforchangepodcast.com for additional episodes, books, and other resources. Thank you again, and remember, when trying to change the world, search for your levers for change.